Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will have time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop on Cancer Care, and today's program is part one of a two-part series on living with small cell lung cancer, and today's program focuses on update on small cell lung cancer treatments. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, but I do want to especially call out the various lung cancer organizations that have really helped to spread the word about the program as well. Um, so I do want to mention Free to Breathe, um, LungCancer.org, Lung Cancer Alliance, Longevity. These are organizations that have really helped to um, let people know about this particular program. And really, because of all of this collaboration and effort to reach out to you and your interest in the topic today, we have over 487 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Algeria, Canada, France, Israel, and the United Kingdom. So this is really a credit to all of you that you have chosen to spend this next hour with us. Now today's program is supported by AbbVie, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Um, this program would not have been possible without that support. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Joe O'Neill. Dr. Neal is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Oncology, Stanford University Medical Center, member Stanford Cancer Institute. And Dr. Neal is going to address an overview of small cell lung cancer, current standard of care, and new treatment approaches. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Neal. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and thank you for everybody joining us today. Um, welcome from out here in sunny California. So today we're going to be talking about small cell lung cancer. And the first question that I usually get is, what, what is small cell lung cancer? Or why is that other kind of cancer called non-small cell lung cancer? This is historical. When pathologists used to look at tumors under the microscope, they would notice that small cell lung cancer, those cells obviously were very small. As opposed to most other kind of cancers with larger cells that looked abnormal, these small cells um, appeared to be dividing fairly quickly and had a very characteristic appearance that was distinct with, from many different other cancers that existed. Um, oftentimes, these small cells would be found in the lungs, and therefore, they were small cell lung cancer. Over the last 100 years since small cell lung cancer has been described, we've learned a lot more about it. We've learned how to stage it. So like non-small cell lung cancer, small cell lung cancer is staged based on where it is and often starts as a small nodule in the lungs that moves to lymph nodes either on the same side of the lungs or in the middle of the chest, um, oftentimes forming fairly large lymph node conglomerates there uh, known as mediastinal lymph nodes. When small cells in the side of the lung and in these lymph nodes on the, in the middle of the chest, it's often referred to as limited stage small cell lung cancer and is often treated with a combination of chemotherapy and radiation to all the areas of, of tumor. 
Unfortunately, small cell lung cancer can also metastasize to more places than just these lymph nodes. And some of the places that it can go include the other side of the lungs, it can go to the liver, it can go to the bones, it can go to the adrenal glands, and it can metastasize to the brain. When it's found in all of these additional places, it's referred to as extensive stage small cell lung cancer or stage four small cell lung cancer. And the treatments primarily focus on systemic treatments that can both treat the areas of cancer that we see as well as the areas of cancer that we can't see that might be a problem in the future. And these systemic treatments work everywhere in the body. Treatment for small cell lung cancer has long consisted of chemotherapy, and chemotherapy can work quite well in shrinking most of the apparent tumor burden of small cell lung cancer. Oftentimes, people are diagnosed with a cough or pressure or symptoms from the cancer, and, and I've noted for my patients that a number of them shortly after getting chemotherapy, as opposed to most patients who think that chemotherapy is going to make them feel sick, oftentimes a week or two later say, I, I don't know why, but I just feel a lot better after getting chemotherapy. Despite a little bit of nausea, despite a little bit of fatigue from the chemotherapy that we'll talk about in this program, people generally do feel better and enjoy good responses from the tumor shrinkage. With limited stage, small cell will often take chemotherapy, usually two drugs, um, cisplatin or carboplatin, generally we call these platinum drugs, and a second drug, most often a toposide, although many different drugs can give, be combined as a second drug and still be highly effective. And we'll give this combination chemotherapy by vein, usually about once every three weeks. Some chemotherapies are more than one day. For example, a toposide's three days in a row every three weeks, but the platinum's usually about once every three weeks. These are given by vein, and these drugs work everywhere in the body, finding those cancer cells, shrinking them, helping patients feel better. Oftentimes, though, that platinum and the side effects can catch up and cause more symptoms. So after a few months of therapy, a limit of around six of these cycles total, then we'll say, well, that's enough chemotherapy. We've really hit the balance between the maximum tumor response and, and the maximum amount that most people can tolerate and say, let's enter a, a maintenance phase or an observation phase. So after six cycles of chemotherapy, um, most tumors shrink. A few of them stay stable. A few of them grow, and we're not completely sure why that is, but it's always somewhat disappointing, but it can happen. Even though we hope they shrink, um, after that time and we stop chemotherapy, then we say, what now? And this is an interesting area of discussion now. Ten years ago, when I first started practice, we would look again with an MRI and see if there were any tumors in the brain, if there were no tumors in the brain and there hadn't been originally a diagnosis, then we would actually offer patients radiation to the brain. And in part of this program, we'll talk about the role of radiation oncology and types of radiation. But increasingly, we're wondering if there is a role for prophylactic radiation or radiation even when tumors are not seen in the brain. And we're also seeing an emerging role potentially for radiation to areas of lymph nodes that were involved originally even for stage four or extensive disease that has already metastasized around the rest of the body to prevent future symptoms and help patients feel good. So after those first rounds of chemotherapy, usually carboplatin and etoposide or cisplatin and etoposide, then we enter the surveillance phase with or without radiation going into that. And that's the period where I explain to patients, I say, well, this is really what we're shooting for. 
Um, after somebody's diagnosed with cancer, especially a symptomatic cancer, there's nothing better than having fewer symptoms than when somebody was originally diagnosed and feeling better than when they were originally diagnosed and having a chance to be off of treatment and, and not leashed to the oncologist's office and having to receive treatments periodically. So that period of time after chemotherapy is done, when the cancer is smaller, that's, that's really a nice chemo holiday, and it's a good period of time when patients can take a break, uh, review everything, get, get plans done. But the problem is oftentimes, almost always, the cancer does come back. And the amount of time that it can come back from varies. Sometimes it doesn't even shrink in the first place. Other, other times it's a fairly long time and prolonged time until the cancer can figure out how to grow again. And depending on how long that is, patients will either um, have the option of undergoing more chemotherapy with the original chemo, sometimes we'll use platinum and etoposide again, or we'll think about other types of chemotherapy, or we'll think about other types of treatments overall. And this we call second-line treatment, which is most often a different kind of treatment than the first, because the tumor cells that are growing again generally retain some sort of resistance to the first type of treatment that was used. So in the second-line treatment of small cell lung cancer, this is really where more treatment options are emerging, and it's really a very exciting time now compared to even a few years ago where we're using drugs that have been approved maybe 10, 20 years before. It's really a very exciting time because we're seeing that there's potentially multiple available options as opposed to just second-line chemo. So the one option that has been approved for a fairly long time and is, is still standard and I still use it routinely is a drug called Topotecan. Um, Topotecan is uh, in, a, in a class of chemotherapies that's slightly different than platinum and etoposide and works in a different way. And compared to old three drug regimens, Topotecan was easier and helped people live longer than the old, older three drug regimens, so it got approved. Topotecan is five days in a row, either by pills or by IV, and I find that for my patients that five-day-in-a-row infusion or five days of pills can be a little bit tough to manage. So I oftentimes substitute it with a cousin drug, arenotecan, which we give every week or every two weeks. And arenotecan seems to have every bit of efficacy as topotecan. One of the nice properties of both of these drugs is that they can have some brain penetration too. We talked about brain metastases and how I worry about those and how we worry about them enough to even give people radiation just in case every once in a while. But, but both of these drugs can get into the brain a little bit, and I think that's an important thing to consider in the second-line treatment of small cell lung cancer. Other options, though, are emerging, and in addition to a long list of single-agent chemotherapies, so those chemotherapies include drugs like the taxane drugs, paclitaxel, docetaxel, nabpaclitaxel, which aren't approved but have been used in small cell lung cancer, gemcitabine, which is used in non-small cell lung cancer and, and also is perfectly active in small cell lung cancer, and, and also temozolamide, which is a drug with emerging efficacy and does have some brain penetration. Those are drugs that are all used in the off-label setting to combat the, the resistant forms of small cell lung cancer that happen after first-line treatment with chemotherapy. 
But there's a couple of other emerging fields, too, of drugs that work completely different. And the one that almost all of my patients ask about, uh, patients with non-small cell lung cancer who see the ads on TV, and patients with small cell lung cancer who, who actually think that the ads on TV um, you know, talked about small cell because of that word non in, in the front is kind of, of, of questionable significance, is the immunotherapies. So immunotherapies are very, very interesting. And what they require is for the tumor to have arisen, because a tumor exists, I always say, it, it arose in somebody and their immune system by definition ignored it. But sometimes the immune system didn't always ignore it. Sometimes the immune system probably tried to fight that cancer early on. And the cancer unfortunately evolved properties to be able to defend itself against the immune system. One of the most common defenses that we've seen emerge across different tumor types, including lung cancers, is the expression of this protein. It's, a, it's, it's almost like a shield on the outside of tumor cells called PDL1. And this PDL1 shield protects the tumor from the immune system, so it shuts down immune cells as they come and try to fight it. And we now have a number of drugs that have been developed. Um, three are FDA-approved in non-small cell lung cancer. Those include nivolumab, pembrolizumab, and atezolizumab. And those three drugs work either on the shield side of PD, PD-1 and PD-L1, or they work on the, on the immune side, the, the PD-1 side of things, and help disrupt that interaction so that the immune system doesn't have to be shut down when it goes and tries to interact with the tumor and instead can fight it. But this, this is not a creating something out of thin air. This is, this is allowing the release of breaks that were put on artificially. And so these drugs don't work in everybody, even in non-small cell lung cancer. And in small cell lung cancer, even though detecting that shield or looking for that PD-L1 protein hasn't been as predictive in terms of knowing who's going to respond or who's not going to respond, what we do see is that a percentage of patients can respond to these drugs. Nivolumab and pembrolizumab both have single agent activity in the second line treatment of small cell lung cancer. That means they can shrink tumors. And some patients who are lucky enough to have tumor shrink on these drugs can actually enjoy fairly long responses, even maybe longer than we would normally uh, expect with second line chemotherapies. And then emerging is the addition of a second drug that actually cranks up the immune system even a little bit higher. It doesn't work on the shield, it just works on the rest of the immune system and helps boost the signal overall. And that's called ipilimumab. So currently the combination of nivolumab and ipilimumab are, are used sometimes in the treatment of second line uh, small cell lung cancer that aren't officially FDA approved, but oftentimes they're, they're included in compendium or, or lists of drugs that are reasonable to use in a given indication. And we're seeing more and more evidence that that may have efficacy in a different way. There's also a number of exciting clinical trials that are getting even more targeted than the immunotherapies. And these include uh, the drug called Rova-T, not yet, yet FDA approved, or also Rovalpituzumab teracine, and that works against a target called DLL3, as well as drugs called PARP inhibitors. And what PARP inhibitors can do is work against uh, DNA repair mechanisms that are normally intact or altered in small cell lung cancer. And by interfering additionally with DNA repair, in addition to chemotherapy, um, these drugs can actually work to synergistically help fight the cancer. So they may have roles in both the first-line treatment together with chemotherapy, as well as the second-line treatment in small cell lung cancer. 
So that's an overview of what I, what I see is out there and on the immediate horizon for patients. But I think we're going to go on uh, in the next session to talk a little bit about what's there on the, on the more medium and distant horizon and exciting options that may be in the future. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Neal. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful overview and also just a lot of excellent information for everybody on the call. So thank you. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you very much. Our next speaker is Dr. Christine Hahn. Dr. Hahn is Assistant Professor of Oncology, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And Dr. Hahn is going to um, d discuss an update on the role of clinical trials, their contribution to treatment options, and managing side effects, discomfort, and pain. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to um, Dr. Hahn. Uh, thank you, Dr. Messner. Thank you to all the participants today in today's call. And thank you to Dr. Neal. That was a wonderful overview, uh, really well stated. Um, and um, I'll talk first about the role of clinical trials and their contribution to treatment options. Uh, cancer drug development represents really the integrated efforts and participation of patients, oncologists, scientists, um, many cases industry and pharma, and the FDA. Um, and the goal is to find therapies that extend survival, but importantly, and more importantly, improve quality of life while extending survival. There have been major pushes to accelerate drug development and drug approval in the field of cancer therapy, and we've seen benefits from this borne out across many cancer types. The contribution of clinical trials to make more treatment options available to all patients with cancers cannot be overstated. Were it not for many of these trials, as Dr. O'Neill just very nicely elaborated on, immunotherapies that have been approved in the last several years uh, would not be available widely to patients. And furthermore, the contribution of patients who are willing to participate in these trials uh, and uh, believe in, in new treatments for cancer uh, cannot be overstated. It's absolutely critical to um, any kind of uh, therapy development. Um, as clinical researchers, our responsibility is to work with our colleagues, industry, and the FDA to try to find um, treatments that seem to have the most promise, the best preclinical data, um, and with the right balance of possible side effects, but to um, extend quality life for people. As an overview to clinical trials, I'd first like to talk about the different phases of clinical trials. Phase one studies um, are the earliest phase studies, and they're really the first introduction of a new drug or sometimes new drug combination. Um, and the trials are designed to ensure that these treatments can be given safely um, and, and are tolerable to patients, and hopefully maybe early on to identify that there might be some cancer types that are patients that respond to the treatment. Uh, phase two would be the next step, and, and these are intended to evaluate responses, usually in disease-specific groups. So if a treatment is intended for small cell lung cancer, a phase two trial may look specifically at a drug in small cell lung cancer. Phase three studies are larger, more rigorous studies uh, to check and check again that the responses or outcomes seen from the earlier phase studies really hold up when a new treatment is compared to what's considered standard of care treatment, um, that they, the results are better or at least equivalent to the current standard of care, but equivalent but maybe with fewer side effects, and, and that would still be a benefit uh, to patients. This being said, trial design is getting more and more innovative. We are seeing hybrids of trials, ones that have phase one and two components that are already merged, ones that also look at multiple tumor groups. 
that we know a lot more about cancer than we did uh, five and ten years ago uh, with the advent of uh, newer technologies. So uh, while some treatments may really be specific for certain tumor types, like small cell lung cancer, we are also finding that some changes in cancer transcend where the cancer may have started from. Um, they may be caused by a specific mutation, and that mutation um, can be something, uh, a, a change that can be targeted across different tumor types. And so um, hopefully this, this new technology is really helping us to define better ways to treat patients. Uh, taking a step back, preclinically, uh, particularly for small cell lung cancer, there have been renewed federal efforts to support research um, and, has, and this has led to specific funding mechanisms for more detailed studies of small cell lung cancer. And by preclinical, I mean studies that are done in the laboratory, really trying to hone in on what makes small cell lung cancer grow, what makes it metastasize, and what makes it sometimes resistant to treatment. As I mentioned before, advances in technology are becoming enabling, um, and many groups have started to collaborate to really molecularly characterize small cell lung cancer. And that means to study the cancer at its DNA level, at its protein level, to look for mutations and changes um, that eventually uh, can lead to new therapies. Clinically, when we look at trying to move some of these lab findings into clinical trials as part of drug development, uh, these advances in technology are enabling researchers to even try to understand individual patients with small cell, how their cancers might be different from each other or how their cancers uh, may respond to certain therapies better than others. And also clinically, not just within small cell lung cancer, we also benefit from learning how different treatment modalities are being applied in different cancers, such as immunotherapy, um, which has been approved in a couple different cancers right now. To touch upon some trials in progress that, that I think are very exciting, Dr. Neal highlighted immunotherapy. Um, it's, it is a, a novel therapy. It's very exciting and uh, global, so we think that immunotherapy can work on a variety of cancers, but not everyone with every cancer. And so efforts are being made to look for what characteristics of tumors may really predict whether patients, a certain patient may respond to immunotherapy, as well as whether certain immunotherapy combinations might be ideally suited for a certain cancer versus another. And there are so many different ways that immunotherapy can be refined and uh, possibly even personalized to treat patients. For small cell-specific trials that I, that I think are very exciting, um, first is uh, rovalpatuzumab to serine that Dr. Neal had mentioned. This, I was very excited about this drug because it, they, when, they, when the researchers were first developing this drug, they were looking specifically at small cell lung cancer and what factor was critical in small cell lung cancer that was not found on any normal tissue and on, on other type, cancer types, and this was a ligand or a protein called DLL3. They were able to make an antibody that targeted DLL3 and tag to it a, a type of chemotherapy, in essence being able to deliver chemotherapy directly to small cell lung cancer cells, and uh, DLL3 is expressed on over 70% of small cell lung cancer cells. It's what we call a biomarker, so um, Right now, the evidence is pointing that if, some, if a patient's cancer expresses DLL3, then they have a much higher chance of responding to this treatment. And rov rovalpatuzumab 
to serine or Rova-T is currently in multiple clinical trials. Um, and um, I personally think that it's very promising in small cell. Other types of targeted therapies are born out of research from the lab and from patient samples, trying to identify uh, what other factors might be more highly seen in small cell lung cancer than other cancers and may also be important in uh, the way small cell lung cancer might develop resistance to treatments. Um, and one of those is PARP, which is a DNA repair enzyme that has um, multiple treatment options to try to target it and is also in uh, various clinical trials. Those are just two that I'll highlight right now, but I, I, I'll say that many of these treatments, immunotherapy, uh, Rova-T, as well as PARP inhibitors are also being used in, in different lines of small cell therapy. So when we usually think about clinical trials, we think about patients who might have recurrent cancer um, and a new uh, early introduction of a, a new treatment into clinical trials. Uh, but another goal is to try to um, offer these treatments to patients earlier on in their therapy, perhaps after they finish their initial chemotherapy when they typically go to surveillance their efforts to look at immunotherapy at that time to see if perhaps immune therapies like nivolumab or ipilimumab um, might be able to prevent or delay the, the time that cancer might recur. Um, so, kind of abrupt, but I will move on to my second topic, which is different. Um, it's uh, managing side effects, uh, discomfort, and pain. Um, um, managing side effects, discomfort, and pain um, in small cell lung cancer is best attended to by an integrated approach. This often involves nursing, nutrition, um, pay, uh, uh, colleagues who specialize in pain and palliative care, and complementary approaches to care. It also integrates multiple disciplines, um, including uh, our pulmonology colleagues and our radiation on oncologists. For side effects, I'll, I'll focus primarily on side effects related to chemotherapy. As Dr. Neal described, first-line treatment is very standardized for small cell lung cancer, so we have a, a good sense of the spectrum of side effects that are encountered. Um, every patient is different, but we have gen a lot of information generally on uh, what will be the most common side effects seen. And ideally, um, we have really good um, interventions to prevent or to treat these side effects. Uh, most often, side effects can include fatigue, which can be cumulative over the, the four to six cycles that patients will receive of first-line chemotherapy. Uh, some side effects are temporary, including hair loss, taste changes. Uh, nausea and vomiting are not often seen, but possibly more manifested as taste changes. And occasionally, depending on the exact chemotherapy chosen, uh, nerve pain. And this can sometimes be long, longer lasting. But as, a, as part of our, the treatment team, it is our role to monitor for these side effects, try to stave them off early on, and then make adjustments in treatment um, if we see that side effects uh, are, are occurring that really affect quality of life. Um, and from uh, the treatment team's uh, perspective, we, we will follow blood counts to make sure that the blood counts, especially infection-fighting cells, are not getting too low. Localized symptoms can also occur. This may be related to cancer, um, and often we can use localized treatments for that, including uh, radiation, which Dr. Rosenzweig will discuss, or, um, or interventional uh, pain approaches can be used if there's a very specific site of pain, or we can talk to our pulmonology colleagues in, in case some of these symptoms might be shortness of breath due to fluid accumulation 
or to a tumor growing near airways, and often they can help uh, with direct intervention. Pain is a concern for many patients, um, and it can be uh, directly cancer-related uh, due to the location of the cancer or potential spread of the cancer. Uh, cancer-related pain can be treated with uh, uh, systemic medicines, pill forms, or IV medications, patches, or, um, or direct interventions such as radiation or interventional pain treatments. And, uh, and finally, uh, there are so many psychological aspects of cancer, di the cancer diagnosis treatment um, and caregiver considerations. Um, and I believe that uh, that uh, when later on we'll be talking more about these aspects of overall cancer care. Thank you very much, Dr. Hahn. That was really outstanding and just really, again, very important in terms of the concept of clinical trials, what is currently available, and then also just managing your quality of life in terms of treatment side effects. And so thank you so much. And I know the questions for you as well during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Kenneth Rosenzweig. Dr. Rosenzweig is Assistant Chair Radiation Oncology, Mount Sinai Beth Israel, Professor of the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Rosenzweig is going to address the role of radiation oncology, different types of radiation treatments, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Rosenzweig. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. Um, so as Drs. Neil and Han discussed, there's a lot of exciting uh, work taking place in systemic therapy or chemotherapy for small cell lung cancer. Uh, but also a lot of the advances over the past 25 years have been through radiation therapy or radiation oncology and I wanted to discuss some of them. Um, so years ago, uh, patients with small cell lung cancer were treated only with chemotherapy. And then the question was, well, will giving radiation to the chest help patients? Will, will, it, will it improve um, their survival? Will it will help them live longer? Will it improve their quality of life? Um, so a number of studies were done um, where essentially you flip a coin. If it was heads, you get treated with radiation. If it was tails, you don't. And it was found that giving radiation to the chest helped people live longer. So that became uh, one of the mainstays of treatment as, as has already been described. And then um, small cell lung cancer is kind of a unique uh, tumor in that it can grow very quickly. So um, there's a lot of urgency um, to treat it, and so this is not uh, one of the diseases where you might want to shop around to many different doctors over throughout your city or over, the, over multiple cities. You really need to get treated right away um, if you have this diagnosis. And the, when cells are growing very quickly, we like to take an aggressive approach to treating them as well. So a different philosophy that came up with treating uh, small cell lung cancer is to try to get as much radiation into the tumor as quickly as possible. So you, it's a little bit unsafe to just crank up the dose to very high levels with each treatment. Uh, but if you give a break in between the treatments, such as six hours, so you do a treatment at nine in the morning and three in the afternoon, um, you can 
uh, get more radiation in per day and give some time for your normal tissues to recover in between. So this is called twice-a-day radiation. Uh, so that study was done, too, where uh, some patients were treated twice a day and some patients were just treated once a day. And the patients who got treated twice a day um, did better. So that became a very uh, standard way to treat patients as well. Um, but, you know, some patients can't tolerate coming in twice a day. For example, if you live far away from the radiation center, it just might not be feasible to go back and forth uh, twice a day. You know, I'm here in New York. Just going two blocks can, can take a, a, a 15 minutes. So certainly uh, commuting from the suburbs into the, into the city can be difficult. Um, so there are some strategies to, instead of increasing each dose per day, to do more treatments, um, but only treat once a day. And that's been working very well, uh, too. And actually, right now, there's a study going on, again, where a, a coin is flipped, and some patients are being treated once a day uh, for about seven weeks. And on the other side, patients are being twi treated twice a day uh, for three weeks. And hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll find out uh, which strategy uh, works better or, or they might actually work equally as well. Um, but giving radiation as you know, one of the initial treatments when the tumor is still located just in the lung or just in the chest has really become a standard of care. Um, but there are some side effects uh, from doing the radiation to the chest. And probably uh, the main one is what we call esophagitis. So itis means you know, irritation or inflammation. So this is inflammation of the esophagus or the food pipe. So swallowing can be very painful um, uh, during the course of radiation and immediately afterwards. So it's not uncommon that uh, uh, people who are getting radiation have to eat softer foods, um, chew their food really well, or even take medicines to help the swallowing become easier. So some of the medicines that we use are uh, numbing medicines that numb up the throat, or sometimes we have to use stronger stuff like just, just narcotics uh, through the mouth uh, to help people uh, keep the nutrition up. So that's the most common problem from the radiation, uh, giving it at the same time as the chemotherapy. Uh, the good news is that's a short-term problem. It's a, it's a bad couple of weeks, maybe a bad month, uh, but then people recover and recover for good, so it's not an ongoing problem. But we always want to make sure people ha don't lose too much weight during the course of treatment. Um, as Dr. Neal um, referred to, once the first round of chemotherapy and you've gotten the radiation is over, there's a question of what to do. Uh, and we do know that uh, small cell lung cancer uh, has a very high likelihood of showing up in the brain. Um, and even though chemotherapy does travel all over the body, um, it doesn't penetrate uh, the brain as well. There's this... Um, each um, neuron in the brain is surrounded by what, what, what scientists call a blood-brain barrier, which makes it difficult for some of the chemicals to penetrate uh, into the brain. Obviously, some chemicals do a good job of getting past the blood-brain barrier. For example, alcohol obviously gets through, which is why people you know, can get inebriated from it, but other medicines uh, don't get in as well. So one thing that was tried was 
radiation is not affected by this blood-brain barrier, so maybe we can give radiation to the brain. And if there are, you know, if there's a couple of microscopic cells of cancer there, we can kill them before we ever find out about them. Uh, so again, that trial was done. Uh, that experiment was done where some patients got radiation and some patients didn't. And the patients who got radiation live longer. Um, so it seemed to be a good treatment, and that's something we routinely do. Um, however, radiation to the brain uh, does have some side effects. Um, and one of the um, uh, primary ones is that it can cause tiredness. And the fatigue can be very significant, and, um, and uh, there can also be some memory loss as well. And when I say memory loss, I mean uh, short-term memory loss. So things like memorizing a phone number or memorizing a shopping list, uh, that type of thing can get a little bit worse. Uh, you, won't, you don't lose long-term memory, so it's not like Alzheimer's or dementia. Uh, you, you, you know, patients who get radiation to the head are going to remember you know, who their children are, who their spouse is. You know, that type of problem doesn't happen. But if you give them a list uh, to go to the grocery store, they're going to have to write it down if they're going to uh, remember what to get. Uh, so some techniques have been developed to try to make that side effect less. Um, so there's a part of the brain that seems to control things like memory uh, called the hippocampus. So some of the new techniques in radiation are trying to avoid giving radiation to the hippocampus. Um, and that's still under investigation, and it seems to be working well, but uh, there's a big study going on uh, giving people tests to see uh, how well they're tolerating it, and uh, hopefully that'll be something uh, we learn about in, in the coming years. Uh, there's one technique in radiation oncology uh, that you might have heard of called stereotactic body radiation therapy, which is a very exciting technique where we can give very focused high doses of radiation to a tumor. Um, unfortunately, that really only works when you're treating a tumor that's in the middle of the lung. And as Dr. Neal explained in the beginning, small cell lung cancer tends to be a big clump of nodes towards the center of the chest. And uh, stereotactic treatment, or SBRT, just isn't safe when you're treating the center of the chest. So. Um, even if you heard about that exciting technique, it's really not something we talk about with our patients with uh, small cell lung cancer because it's just not a safe treatment to do. Uh, but some of the other techniques like hippocampal sparing, uh, cranial irradiation, and thoracic radiation are things that have been shown uh, to be helpful. Um, so we, we do offer them. And I think one thing to just to, to sum up talking about quality of life issues, um, I think there are some treatments that are what I would say, quote unquote, non-negotiable. So you're giving radiation to the chest, even though it has some esophagitis, is pretty well tolerated and it really helps. Uh, giving radiation to the head, is, you know, there might not be any tumors in the head, so there might not be any benefit from it. So that's something you should really discuss the side effects with your radiation oncologist. Um, Older patients seem to have a tougher time with the radiation than younger patients. So that's something that really merits a discussion. And um, it's not necessarily wrong not to do that treatment. And it really should be the type of thing um, you, you get as much information about before you go ahead with, with any treatment. 
and, and that's all I have for now. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenzweig. That was really helpful to people understand the role of radiation oncology and all um, the benefits of radiation oncology um, in terms of the treatment. So thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Ms. Diana Bairden. Ms. Bairden is a dietitian, nutritionist, um, and she is supervisor of clinical nutrition at the University of Texas and the Anderson Cancer Center. And Ms. Bairden is going to address nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. Very important area. I'm going to turn this program over to uh, my colleague, um, Ms. Bairden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of small cell lung cancer. We've heard a lot today um, about the treatment and potential side effects related to the treatment. And so um, what I'm going to encourage all of you to do is communicate with your healthcare team. The sooner you tell them about side effects, the sooner they can help you with addressing them and hopefully relieving some of those issues that go along with the treatment. Um, nutrition and hydration are key to tolerance um, to treatment and provide you the energy to do the things you enjoy. In general, a plant-based diet is the most ideal for patients, and this is through prevention, treatment, and survivorship. And this translates into having about two-thirds of your plate come from a plant-based food, such as whole grains, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds. And the plant-based foods provide us antioxidants and phytochemicals, which are important for our body um, to function. The other third of your plate um, should be from a lean protein. This can be from a wild-caught fish, um, poultry, beans, trying to do a vegetarian meal um, a couple of times a week is, is recommended. But protein is the building block for healing, and through treatment, um, there's a lot of destruction, especially from the chemotherapy, because it's um, destroying cells, good and bad. And so we want protein to help with not only the cell development, but also with healing. If you've had surgery, if you're going under radiation, those tissues need to heal, so protein is very important. Now, throughout your treatment, a plant-based diet may not always be appropriate. It may be that we have to modify things. So communicating with your healthcare team is the best way to individualize um, to your needs. All right. Um, when we look at hydration, hydration is something that oftentimes patients forget about um, because they're, maybe the medications they're taking are making them sleep more often. Um, maybe they just aren't hungry. Maybe they don't feel well nauseated, et cetera. But hydration is um, something that can be quite powerful. It can um, actually um, result in nausea, feeling nauseous. Um, feeling more fatigue, making you feel dizzy and um, off, you know, off your game. Um, fluids are anything that is liquid at room temperature. So this includes water, juice, sports drinks. Um, in general, most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Um, if you're having diarrhea or going through radiation, um, you know, there may be a need for an incre increase in your fluid intake. Um, again, but if you are experiencing any side effects, keeping a daily record um, of your intake can be very helpful for your team in targeting how to best 
um, understand what's going on. And so meeting with a dietitian is very helpful. They may um, have some great suggestions on how to modify foods to help you tolerate them, just like we heard um, in the previous um, presentation that um, soft foods, um, modifying your foods in some way because swallowing might be um, uncomfortable can be um, a little confusing. You know, how, how do I make it work where I'm going to like it? So a dietitian can really give you some great ideas and answer some of those questions for you. Um, that wraps up my portion of the presentation. Presentation. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop, and I'm going to pass this over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bird, and that was really wonderful and so informative. And um, so thank you. And our next speaker is Wynn Burkle. Wynn is an oncology social worker, and he is our National Lung Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And Mr. Burkle is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Mr. Burkle. Thank you, Carolyn. You know, being diagnosed with small cell lung cancer is in some ways very much like moving into a new neighborhood. Our cancer pushes us into a strange and sometimes scary new environment, and we really don't know where anything is or what we can do to get some control over a very difficult change in our lives. Fortunately, Cancer Care serves in the role of the good neighbor who is there to help you find your way in this very strange new place. Here's how. Cancer Care's user-friendly website, www.cancercare.org, in addition to providing a wealth of cancer information and topics, serves as a convenient entry point to connect with the many services which Cancer Care makes available. These services include such things as education and a wide range of supportive assistance resources. Let's look at these services in a bit more detail. Cancer Care's educational program reaches out to include its array of cancer education workshops which provide information on coping with the physical and emotional impact of cancer, such as today's workshop, as well as informative workshops on diagnosis-specific cancer topics. Replays of these workshops are available both online at Cancer Care's website, www.cancercare.org, and via your phone. Many folks find it convenient to download these replays to their iPods and MP3 players so to listen to them on the way to work or sitting on the train as you commute. You know, the education program also provides Cancer Care's well-known Cancer Care Connect booklets, which are available free of charge and are packed with up-to-date information on treatments and the latest coping strategies to help cancer patients and those who care for them. While one is at our website, they can also sign up for Cancer Care's popular free e-newsletter or catch up with our latest informative CopeLink blogs. Our support services are provided by professionally trained staff of experienced oncology social workers who are there to assist folks like you in dealing with the many issues which arise from a diagnosis of small cell lung cancer. Some of these issues will include assistance with emotional issues in which our workers assess clients and provide appropriate, helpful psychosocial interventions. Assistance with practical issues such as financial assistance through Cancer Care's limited financial assistance programs and referral to the Cancer Care Copay Assistance Foundation. Resource finding assistance. Our social workers refer folks to the many organizations and agencies established to help cancer patients. Assistance with navigating the system. Cancer care social workers assist people in understanding how to best manage the many new relationships involved in health care. 
assistance with communications in which our workers are skilled at helping folks learn how to best communicate with their health care providers, employers, friends, and family members about their new situation. Cancer care social workers provide this assistance in a variety of friendly settings, such as at Cancer Care's national office and its regional offices in the tri-state New York metropolitan area, where folks can receive individual and group counseling in a face-to-face modality, or over the phone, where people from across the nation can find immediate assistance by contacting the Cancer Care Helpline, 1-800-813-HOPE, and longer-term assistance through individual telephone counseling with a cancer care social worker, as well as connecting with other people in professionally facilitated telephone support groups, and online with people from across the country share concerns in professionally-led online support groups, which are available 24-7 for participation. Our popular support groups, whether for patient or caregiver, and whether they're experienced in face-to-face online or telephone modalities, provide the group member with a safe place to share the burdens, feelings, and stress with others who are involved in a very similar situation. There's no need to explain yourself in a support group. They know what you're talking about. Group members share helpful tips and information on how best to cope with the experience of small cell lung cancer. So many of our support group members talk about belonging to that special family which helps them live with lung cancer each day. The professional facilitator skills of Cancer Care's oncology social workers ensure that each support group member is maintained as a special place for each and every member. Call us today to learn more about this wonderful resource. You know, I'm sure none of us ever expected to find ourselves moved to the neighborhood of small cell lung cancer. But now that you're here, be assured that Cancer Care like that good neighbor, is there with you. Connect with us at www.cancercare.org or by calling us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Wynn. That was wonderful and uh, very informative. And, and now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask Andrea to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. I'm also going to ask Andrea to bring all of our speakers on board so that we can address um, the questions that you may have. So Andrea, if you could, um, we have some questions already, but uh, let's give everybody the, the same direction so everybody knows how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star and then 1. And we have a question from one of our online participants, um, actually um, from Maureen. Um, um, are there any medications on the – I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Neal if you could address this question. Are there any medications on the market or treatments that prevent the development of the protein that protects the tumor as a proactive approach? It's an interesting question. and. Uh, Dr. Neal, could you comment on this um, excellent question? So I, so I think this question is in, in response to my shield analogy that uh, some tumors evolve a shield around them called PDL1 or programmed death ligand 1, and then that protein can shield from the immune system. Um, 
we, you know, the, there there is a theory. It's a little bit of a scary theory that many people evolve many more cancers than we actually see clinically, and that many of those cancers are are basically eradicated by the immune system. We know this indirectly because patients who are on immunosuppressants for other reasons after transplant often have a higher risk of developing cancer. Even though theoretically it makes a lot of sense to prevent the cancer from evolving and prevent the cancer from protecting itself, it probably evolves those properties at such a stage where we don't even know that it exists yet. So, so we'd be we're, the question is talking about prevention of development of cancer in effect, and it's very very tough to prevent cancers in a in a gigantic population of patients. Things have been tried like vitamins and um, other chemicals and, and dietary things. I think probably one of the key elements of cancer prevention more than anything else is, is what we learned from our nutritionists, which is lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, lots of those phytoantioxidants, lean proteins, exercise regularly, which we're all told to do in the general population, and of course, avoiding smoking. And even for people who have diagnosed with small cell lung cancer, treatments are much easier if they stop smoking if they can. So I think it's everything that we know about prevention rather than specific mechanisms that are going to emerge. Great question, though. Excellent question. This is a wonderful. You know, these questions are the participants really ask the greatest question. So another question, I'm going to um, uh, address this question to Dr. Hahn. Um, so from Judy. Um, where can we see trials available to participate and info on how to submit um, for clinical trials, so how to participate in a trial? So if you could just... Um, yeah. sure. That's a great question, Judy. Um, there, the NCI provides a website, www.clinicaltrials.gov, that is sort of the whole, uh, sort of houses all the available trials in the U.S., um, actually, internationally as well. So there are different ways that uh, trials can be searched, and you can use key terms. I I like this website a lot. It can be a little bit difficult to manage because it is in intended to uh, include um, all trials. And so I think that that's a good starting point if you find it searchable. Um, and then I would also speak to your local oncologist or even consider an opinion at a larger volume center, and usually those people or points of contact can guide you uh, in, in, a, in a helpful direction. There's so many clinical trials available that it's really hard for a single institution or even a single area to be able to offer all the potential trials for a cancer type. Um, so it really um, sometimes does take a couple contacts along the way to help you, uh, to help you navigate. May may I add uh, one yes. or two things? Yes, please. Dr. Neal, so I think uh, Dr. Rosenzweig said small cell is, is a rapidly growing cancer, and often it's not good to shop around for second and third opinions and travel long distances geographically. And, and I would underscore that for most clinical trials, it's tar hard to move across the country and even more so for small cell. So I think, I think regional clinical trials, no matter what they are, are always great if people have the option to participate. And uh, the most effective first point of contact is your own oncologist. And your oncologist can reach out and send an email to somebody at the nearby academic center and say, do you have any clinical trials? And kind of smooth that path in advance instead of having to try and navigate clinicaltrials.gov. So use your oncologist and say, hey, do you mind reaching out to Dr. So-and-so before I go and spend my time on a visit? 
because you may be able to spend your time having a better quality of life other than waiting in the waiting room there. An excellent point. And, and Dr. Rosenzweig, do you want to add to something? Because there are clinical trials, radiation trials as well. Do you want to comment on that as well? Just Yeah, I mentioned a few of them uh, while I was speaking. So what we're trying to do in radiation is, you know, figure out, you know, how uh, using it might help in specific situations. So um, one thing that Dr. Neal uh, referred to, which I didn't really get a chance to expound on that much, is an extensive stage small cell when the tumor has spread outside of the lung. Uh, there seems to be a role of giving radiation to areas where there is disease um, to try to uh, kill any cancer that's left over. And we're trying to do a dose that uh, kills enough cancer but doesn't cause a whole lot of side effects to try to get the best uh, ratio of therapy to, um, to um, you know, symptoms from it. And that seems to help people live longer as well. So, you know, we're always trying to figure out ways to, to uh, kind of use every trick we have up our sleeves to help patients uh, do better, have less side effects, and uh, uh, live a higher quality of life uh, down the road with this, uh, ve you know, very challenging disease. Excellent. Um, thank you. And a question for Ms. Bairdon, um, actually from one of our online participants, um, from Judy. Um, so she's asking for a website for nutrition, for nutritional issues for people living with um, cancer, and wondered if you would want to recommend the NCI site, or if there's a site or a couple of sites that you would recommend for people, and we'll take note of them and be sure to send them out to everybody as well. Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, cancer.gov, cancer.org, um, AICR, um, all phenomenal um, websites. And the, the thing about AICR that I, I really love, they have uh, some great cook, cookbook ideas, and it's all free. Um, they also have a wonderful um, updated posting on current topics in nutrition and cancer, and it's very, very helpful. So AICR, AICR, mm -hmm. um, do you want to spell that out? Actually, yes. Sure. It's the um, it's a American AICR came right American Institute for Cancer Research. Yeah, okay. and then okay. yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so AICR. So we're going to send you all that information to everyone who and those mm -hmm. are nice websites to just have access to. And we have another question from one of our. Um, <coughs> from one of our online participants. Um, we really appreciate all of your good, great, great, great questions here. Um, so the question is, and I'm going to ask this, I'll start with Dr. Neal, but I'm going to ask everyone to comment on this. Um, can I pass um, small cell lung cancer on to my children? So I'm going to ask um, if Dr. Neal, if you could start, then Dr. Hahn, Dr. Rosenzweig, if you could address this. Um, ah, yeah, that's it. That's that, thank you for the question. That's a great question and often something that I include in what I tell new patients, uh, more so for non-small cell lung cancer where we talk about molecular analysis and mutations. But mutations give rise to small cell lung cancer too at the very fundamental basis. These mutations happen in a single cell in the lungs. These mutations are not something that's generally in somebody's um, overall DNA. It's generally not something that can be passed along from person to person. And so there's very little heritability that's been described in either small cell lung cancer or non-small cell lung cancer. And in small cell lung cancer in general, it's not something thought to be heritable. 
Now, the one thing that does run in families, though, is smoking patterns. And smoking patterns, when they can be interrupted, then small cell lung cancer doesn't seem to run in families anymore. And Dr. Hahn, do you want to add anything to that? Or? No, it, I reiterate that, that this is not considered a, ter a terrible condition. And I would just like to add um, you know, that smoking is the main cause of small cells, so um, there's never a bad time to stop smoking. So sometimes people, once they've been diagnosed, feel, well, what's the point? Uh, we know that Stopping smoking helps people live longer even after the diagnosis. So, um, it, you know, it is definitely something that people can do to, to help themselves. Uh, never a bad time to stop smoking. Excellent. And um, another question from one of our online participants will be our last question. Um, so, and this one will be for Dr. Hahn. Are there any recent developments or research with immunotherapy that can benefit small cell lung cancer patients? And although you addressed it a bit, if you want to say a bit more about it. Yeah, sure. Dr. Uh, Dr. Neil had talked a little bit about this, um, and there are there are ongoing efforts and you know data that we are hearing about um, in in earlier phase uh, clinical trials, um, looking at the. PD-1 inhibitor, nivolumab, also known as Opdivo, um, w alone or in combination with ipilimumab, which is a CTLA-4 um, antibody, another form of immunotherapy that's been approved in melanoma. Um, and our early data um, from a study called Checkmate 32 has shown that we do see responses in patients with small cell. Uh, so far, higher responses in, in patients who received the combination of the two immunotherapies um, slightly lower in those that have um, just Opdivo. However, there are responses. And, and so I think that these early data are very promising and leading into um, more developed trials, either as maintenance or um, even in combination with chemotherapy. So we do have early signs. I think that there are uh, um, Sort of innumerable ways that immunotherapy can be combined with chemotherapy, with targeted therapies, or um, even between different immunotherapy treatments. And so, uh, there will there are currently multiple trials open for small cell, and there will continue to be uh, trials available. Um, also, um, nivolumab or and nivolumab plus ibilumumab are are included in the NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network treatment guidelines. Uh, and so as practitioners, we're finding uh, more ability to uh, to use these uh, in a recurrent small cell lung cancer. Well, excellent. I, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal today, really, just wonderful. And I also want to thank all of our participants. You always ask such wonderful questions, um, actually, on these calls, and just really um, uh, just really um, are just amazing. And I know there are questions that we didn't get to, so I do want to actually let you know that there is a way to get your questions answered. So for medical questions that you may have about small cell lung cancer, I do, first of all, of course, recommend that you speak to your healthcare team. But, but in addition, some of you would like to go to a, a place that you really feel you can get really good information. We like to think of evidence-based information. And we do recommend that you um, contact the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. Or for those of you who would like to um, go on their website, they have a live chat feature. It would be www.cancer.gov. And you'll be getting that information from us. But I just want to be sure that you all, um, for anyone who actually you know, might 
have a continuing question, that that's a great place, of course, to ask. We will also be sending you all the information um, uh, in terms of the additional uh, websites for information about nutrition that you may have. For those of you who would like to take advantage of Cancer Kids services from our oncology social worker that Wynn Burkle uh, addressed, you can simply call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And the services include practical and financial assistance, counseling services, a chance to talk to one of our oncology social workers, joining a support group, whether it be a telephone support group or an online support group, getting information, our publications, participating in our workshops, also, just visiting our website, which is really lots of information there as well on, on lung cancer information. Um, so I just want you to be sure that um, you have a sense of where to get additional information. Most importantly, as we conclude our program today, we don't want anyone, to, anyone on this call to feel that you're alone. You're now connected to Cancer Care, and we're simply a phone call away or a mouse click away in terms of visiting our website or calling us. Also, um, there is a part two to this program, so I do want to remind you that there is a part two. Um, this is unique. We often often don't have a part two, but this does have a part two. And part two is on Tuesday, March 14th, Diagnostics in Small Cell Lung Cancer, How Diagnostics Help Inform Treatment Decisions. Many of you have signed up for this program already, but if you haven't, please go ahead and do that. And again, you'll be getting after this program an evaluation to complete and also with all of these resources for you and information about all the upcoming programs as well. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. This has been a remarkable call, and your questions have just been really fantastic. So thank you all, and have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.